in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning of verse 1, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I remember a song years ago where I worked that was on the radio a lot. I think it might have been called Dirty Laundry. It talked about how people love dirty laundry. They talked about a, an anchor on the news who could tell you about the plane crash with a gleam in her eye and, and how so much of our news seems to be negative. And I thought, you know what, it does seem often true. I know they're trying to get your attention with things, but it seems that uh, most of the things that they find that will get our attention must be bad things because we do kind of get a lot of bad news as we watch our media and take in the news. It often seems to stand out in conversation. might call it gossip. Sometimes we sanctify gossip by calling it news, but that can tend to be negative as well. But you know, in stark contrast to that, I think we also enjoy good news. I was just thinking this morning about some of the good news that we've had recently. I I think of uh, Mary's the search for cancer with her and her and coming up empty after thinking we weren't even sure she'd be with us this long, not too awful long ago. That was really good news. Mark Young, his uh, brain tumor not only didn't grow, but shrunk. This last week, my brother-in-law, Craig Turner, texted me and said, hey, my MRI was good. I saw him later in the day and I said, all right, tell me what that means exactly. He said, well, my tumor's not growing or anything. Everything's still going real well. Boy, you kind of love news like that, right? We might drift toward the other stuff a little bit, but we really love Good news. We love to hear about the arrival of a new baby or or, uh, weddings coming up. uh, All kinds of good news. We just love experiencing that kind of good news. Well, that's the focus this morning. The word that we find in the passage is gospel. He's going to focus on the gospel. And the word gospel means good news. The word gospel is used in a variety of ways, just like a lot of words are in our language. I remember talking to somebody one time and talking about the importance of getting the gospel into messages and into any time the church has an event that it's going to have more visitors in and stuff like that. The importance of having the gospel in. And the individual said, oh yeah, you're right, that gospel's important. And they weren't really attending a church that I would have thought was super gospel oriented, at least for my perspective and so it kind of startled me a little bit and then they went on to say yeah we read from one of the gospels in every service i was like oh that's where our disconnect is what i'm talking about when i talk about the gospel and what they're talking about when they talk about the gospel is two different things they're similar but a little bit different because usually when i refer to the gospel in that kind of a setting i'm talking about the fact that we're sinners christ died for us to pay for our sins rose again from the dead to give us victory over sin and death and if we trust in him we can be saved. That's the gospel. 
But you know what? We also use the word gospel to refer to the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John. And that's how they were thinking about it, just reading from one of the gospels. And so there are different ways to use the word gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ and what He did for us on that cross and through His resurrection. And so there's kind of a broader sense of the gospel and a more narrow one. In both places, the word means the same thing. It means the good news. And in this passage, he focuses on a narrower understanding of the gospel as he lays out that good news for us this morning. Well, as we focus on that, we're going to look at four different characteristics of the gospel that are found within this passage. The first characteristic of the gospel is we're going to recognize the supremacy of the gospel. In verse 3, notice he says, I delivered you as of first importance. In other words, what he's saying is, I want to talk to you about the gospel because it is high on the chart of things that we really need to understand as of first importance. Now think of all the other things that he's talked to him about. The divisions that were within the church, immorality that was in the church that needed to be judged and needed to be dealt with. He talked about lawsuits and them suing one another. He talked about marriage, divorce, remarriage, singleness. He talked about the use and misuse of spiritual gifts. He talked about the Lord's Supper, which commemorates the death and the resurrection of Christ is a very picture of the Gospel that we're studying today. And so all these things are huge. And now he says, now I want to talk to you as a first importance. Right top of the list is going to be this discussion on the resurrection. It's going to be this discussion on the Gospel. There is supremacy in the Gospel. It is hugely important. Without the Gospel... We have no hope. Remember the song that we sang earlier that talks about us and our lost condition and being rescued from that and moving from that place where sin has this grip on us to where no guilt in life. I'm not under the bondage of guilt anymore. I'm not under my own sin anymore because Christ took my sin on the cross. And then it also says not only no guilt in life, but no fear in death because Christ rose again from the dead. And He's promised me that just as He rose again from the dead, later in chapter 15, it's going to refer to His resurrection as the first fruits. In other words, the first fruits were the offering that they gave back to God because we know a whole bunch more is coming as we harvest our crops. And so it's a recognition that Christ's resurrection was just the beginning of the resurrection from the dead. And we will experience the resurrection from the dead also. Christ's resurrection is directly connected to our resurrection. And so he says, look, this is supreme. This affects your whole future. In fact, the Apostle Paul, a little later in the passage, is going to say, if all we have is this life, then let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Might as well just do that. Get what you can because it's short. But it's not short. It doesn't. It, this life comes to an end, but then we experience the resurrection in Christ and we have this whole incredibly glorious future. If you could just recognize the hope that is in Jesus Christ and in the Gospel and the glorious future that we can have in Him. You see, that's why the Gospel is supreme. Our life has a lot of struggles. There's hardships and there's, there's suffering. There's, there's death. There's sickness. There's broken relationships. All kinds of damage. We are under the bondage of the curse. But in Christ, through the Gospel, we have hope and we have victory. Again, when you get later on, way toward the end, in 1 Corinthians 15, way toward the end of this chapter, he's going to say, you know what, there's coming a day when we're going to say, death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? You see, those things sting right now. They hurt right now. There's coming a day where they won't. 
we will get that victory. And that's why the gospel is supreme. Well, not only do we see the supremacy of the gospel, but also notice the strength of the gospel. As we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just the first two verses, he starts off, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. What is it that, that saves us? How do we experience the deliverance from our sin and the freedom that we have in Christ? It happens through the gospel. This is the thing that my thick head had a hard time uh, letting it sink in. When I first got around church and stuff like that and started learning more about God, started reading the Bible, things. it took a, a, like a year and a half for this to sink into my head. Because I had it just kind of ingrained in my thinking that if I was going to end up in heaven before God, that it was going to happen because I lived a pretty good life. Now, I knew that that had to involve believing in Him. In other words, I, I thought that meant you just believed that He existed. I thought that that's all it meant to believe. Believe is a lot stronger of a word than that. But I thought if you believed that God existed and you lived a good life, then you'd end up in heaven. That's not what saves us. You see, if that was the case, then I would be saved by my power because my own strength to live a good life. And I'm not that strong. I haven't lived that good of a life. Because when we're talking about heaven, we're talking about perfection. When we're talking about God, we're talking about ultimate holiness. And I am way, way away from being able to stand in front of that kind of holiness. Well, the day that I realized that, it became very clear to me, all of a sudden the gospel made sense. The fact that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You know, I never really stopped and thought before, if I can get to heaven just by being a pretty good person, then why did Jesus die? What would He need to die for if, that's, if that was the path to heaven? But the fact of the matter is, we can't get to heaven. We've already proved that we can't get to heaven because we've blown it on a pretty regular basis. And so we can't get to heaven of our own strength. So where is the strength? Where is the power that we can tap into to get to heaven? It's in the Gospel. Jesus died on that cross for our sins and He rose again from the dead to give us victory over sin and over death. You know, it was that moment, that morning, June 2nd, 1985. And I realize not everybody can pinpoint the date. That's not really the important part. The important part is, well, what does it say in the passage here? Notice his emphasis. He says, it's the gospel that I preached to you. He points out a few things. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He makes it very clear that the gospel is that vehicle by which we're saved. There's, there's no getting to heaven outside of the gospel. Jesus is the one who died on the cross for us so that we can be forgiven of our sins. He took our penalty upon Himself. We trust in Him and we are saved. That's how we're saved. Now notice what it, that involved. The Apostle Paul said, I came and I preached to you the gospel. Nobody's saved their whole life. There has to be a point where you heard it You understood it. Maybe you heard it many times by the time you understood it, like me. I heard it so many times. And then finally I understood it and it sunk in and I was like, oh, at that moment, what do I need to do? What did they do? They received it. In other words, when the Apostle Paul preached the Gospel to them, they welcomed it. They believed it. The other way he describes it, he says, in which you stand. In other words, you're trusting in it. Your position is now in the Gospel. It's like, think back to my example again. When I, before I came to Christ, where was I standing? I was standing on my own good works, which wasn't enough to get me there. The moment that I understood the Gospel, I transferred my trust from trusting in myself and my ability to, do, to live a good life. 
I transferred my trust into Jesus Christ in the fact that He died for me and overcame death. From that moment on, I've been standing in the Gospel. If you ask me, are you going to heaven? I say, absolutely. How do you know you're going to heaven? Because Christ died for me. And He rose again to give me life. That's how I know I'm going to heaven. You know, when I was standing back in my own works, you always had to be, well, is it enough works? How much is enough? Have I blown it bad enough to be disqualified? How much is blowing it bad enough? Well, Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden for eating one wrong piece of fruit because God told them not to eat that piece of fruit. So apparently one thing will get you booted out of the presence of God. So I was well outside the presence of God. But you know, in Christ, standing in Him, in the Gospel, standing firm in the Gospel, I have no question of my salvation. Because it's not based on me. It's based on the One who died for me. Now, notice what he says. He says, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. So you receive it, you believe it, you trust in it, you stand in it. You're saved. He says, if you hold fast. Because, you know, that's what faith does. Faith stands strong. There, there really isn't a, well, I used to believe that and now I don't. Because faith is faithful. Now, the Apostle Paul recognizes sometimes it might look like somebody used to believe something and now they don't. But the point that he's making is there wasn't a legitimate faith. Because what does he say? He says, unless there is this possibility, unless you believed in vain. What, is, what does that mean, to believe in vain? Believing in vain means you believed without a cause. That's what vain means, with, without a cause. In other words, there wasn't anything to it. You weren't solid in it. You weren't committed to it. You weren't all in. He says there is that possibility. There are people that are going to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but when struggles come along in life or whatever, their faith seems to drop off. Now, there, I don't want to disregard the element that there are people that struggle and then come back. That coming back is a sign that they had genuine faith. Jesus told a story one time about a farmer, Matthew 13, that went out, sowed seed into the field. And he said some seed fell on the road and the birds came down and got it. Some fell among stony places and it sprouted up, but it didn't have enough soil to grow roots, so it withered and it died. Some fell among the weeds and they got choked out. And then some fell in the good soil and it grew. And in his story, there's really one seed that, that ends up genuine faith. And that's the one that landed in the good soil and it grew. The other ones, he says, some of it gets in among the weeds and it's like the cares of this world, possessions, hobbies, all those different kinds of things can even be good things. Choke it out. For others, it's that no root. Oh yeah, I believe that. Excited about that for a moment. But then withers and dies. Why? Because there's no root in it. No reality to the, to the statement of their faith. No meat to their belief. Persecutions, hard times come and they don't last. And then he talked about the one that fell on the ground and the birds came and ate the seed. And he said that's stuff that Satan distracts them and they're easily distracted. And in none of those three cases did they have genuine faith. They had empty faith. They had an appearance of belief, but not the reality of belief. And that's what the Apostle Paul is telling these people here. He says, look, I'm talking to you about the Gospel. This Gospel is what saves you. He's confident in them. He says, you received it. I think you believed it. You were, you were standing in it. You're standing in it now. He says, but there is that possibility that your faith wasn't genuine. So what is, how does the Gospel save us? Genuine faith. Simply trusting in Jesus Christ, but trusting, standing in it, rooting yourself in it. This is my position. I'm in Christ. 
I'm not trusting in my own works. I'm not trusting in a religion. I'm trusting in Christ. Why am I going to heaven? Christ died for me. That's the simplicity of the Gospel. And that's where we see the strength of the Gospel. Think of that. The strength that's in the Gospel that can take a soul, an individual, that's destined for hell and set them in heaven. The Gospel that can overcome any sin and all of your sin in your whole life, overcome that and bring forgiveness. And a Gospel that can take your enmity, which is the Bible the Bible says we have, we have an enmity between us and God, and it can take that enmity and make it a friendship. That is an amazing strength to the Gospel. Well, not only does he deal with that, but he also deals with the substance of the Gospel. What exactly is he talking about about the Gospel? He defines it very clearly for us here. And what does it contain? It contains the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He was appeared to Cephas. Now, when you look at it on appearance here, it looks like there's actually four things. Right? Because He says... Here's what I received that I'm passing on to you. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was risen again. And He appeared to all these people. But actually, if you think about it, it really boils down to two things. It's the death and the resurrection of Christ. Because what is the burial? The burial is the confirmation of His death. You don't bury people that are still alive. And so the the burial is the confirmation of Christ's death. Well, in the same way, the appearances are the confirmation of His resurrection. How do we know that Christ rose again from the dead? Well, one, the tomb was empty. And two, a whole bunch of people saw Him. A whole bunch of people saw Him. He appeared to many, many people as proof that He had risen again from the dead. So it really boils down to these two things. What is the Gospel? You know what I see in the Gospel? I see something that is very much for me. But other than that, I'm pretty absent in it. In other words, the Gospel is not something that I accomplish at all. The Gospel is what Christ did for me. The Gospel is that He died on that cross for my sins and He rose again from the dead to give me the victory. That's the substance of the Gospel. In a nutshell, if you want to put the Gospel in a nutshell, and we do, that's what it is. It's the death and the resurrection of Christ. And then finally, he also points to the stability of the Gospel. This is the part where we deal with the confirmation of His resurrection. What is the the stability of that? In other words, what what does He base it on? He, He repeats it a couple of times. And what He does is He bases it on, first of all, Scripture. It says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so he's looking at back at the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul says, just like we see back in the Old Testament pointing forward to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus first rose again from the dead, one of His early appearances were uh, on the road to Emmaus. He came up along a couple of His disciples and He didn't reveal Himself to them at first. He just kind of struck up a conversation with them. They were talking about the fact that they had trusted Christ to be the Savior, thought He was going to set up His kingdom. Now what are we going to do? And Jesus comes up along and He's like, well, you guys are looking awful bummed. What's heavy on your heart? And they said, well, we were following this guy. been following Him for three years. We thought He was the Messiah. Thought He was going to set up His kingdom. They killed Him. 
They hung him on the cross and they killed him. And it says in Luke 24, verse 25 and following, it says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. He just takes them through and look at all these places in the Old Testament that showed that I was going to come, die, and rise again. There, there are things like in Genesis chapter 22 and dealing with Abraham, where God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and take him to a place I'm going to show you, and you're going to sacrifice him there. He was the child of promise. God promised Abraham that all the blessings that were going to come to Abraham were going to come through Isaac. And now God tells him, go kill your only son. Offer him up as a sacrifice. Abraham obeys, gets up early the next morning, takes his son Isaac and the supplies, and they just start on a journey. And guess how long the journey is? Three days. Three days to get to the place where God wants him to be. And then Abraham goes up and he builds an altar and he binds up Isaac and he puts him on the altar and he's just about to kill him and God says, don't do it. You know, in Genesis 22, verse 8, they're on the way up and Isaac is kind of curious. He's, he begins to talk to his dad. He says, Dad, we got everything here except for one really big thing's missing. We've got the wood, we've got the fire, we've got everything like we're going to provide a, do a sacrifice, but there's no, we don't have a sacrifice. It says, Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them on together. Verse 14, just a little farther down, it says, after things were all done, says Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And so when you look at this whole story, God didn't have Abraham tell us the gospel. He had Abraham live out the gospel for us. It gave us a picture. Abraham, for three days, his son in his mind was as good as dead. And then he gets there. He tells his son, prophetically, God will provide himself a lamb. It's the same when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming at the river. He says, behold, the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world. He points out that lamb that's going to be provided by God. And they get there and Abraham goes. He's about to sacrifice his son. And God says, stop. And then stuck in the thicket, there's a ram. And he sacrifices that ram instead. Isaac is a picture of Christ and the ram is a picture of Christ both in that story. You know, in John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and here's a religious guy that lived a good life, comes before Jesus. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you're not even going to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is confused. What in the world are you talking about? How can this happen? Jesus tells him another story, takes him back to another time during Moses' lifetime when Israel rebelled against God and God sent poisonous snakes into the camp as a judgment on their rebellion. But God did what He always does. Same time He brings judgment, He also provides a way of salvation. He told Moses to make a bronze serpent on the top of your staff and go hold your staff up. Anybody that gets bit by a poisonous snake, they can be forgiven for that. They can go to the where you are, look up at that staff and look up at that serpent, and they'll be healed. Well, what is it about looking up? It's about faith. Look, if you, wouldn't, if you didn't believe it, you wouldn't even go there. And you sure wouldn't look up at it. You'd just die. If they get bit, they just need to go to that, look up at the serpent, they'll live. And he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. You see the serpent on the staff, which is still used outside of hospitals and ambulances and things today. That same symbol was a symbol pointing to Christ being lifted up on the cross that if we look up at Him in faith, that we are saved. We live. Well, you know what? Jesus used so many other things. He used the water. 
He used water that they, they had a, a ceremony in the tabernacle where they would have bring water to the temple and pour it out into this trough. And it looked back at the time when God provided miraculously for them in the wilderness by getting water from a rock. And Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you the living water. It'll burst forth from within you. He used bread. They said, we know that God spoke to Moses because He gave our forefathers manna in the wilderness under Moses. And Jesus says that manna was just a picture of Me. I am the true bread that gives life to the world. God provided manna which gave them life because otherwise they would have starved in the desert. They didn't even know what it was. Manna means what is it? God sent down this heavenly bread to give them life in the wilderness. Jesus says, that's Me. I was sent down by the Father to give you life. He also talked about uh, the Bible looks back at the Passover. How when they were getting delivered out of Egypt, and God said, okay, I'm going to send the death angel through tonight and he's going to kill the firstborn in every family. Except for in Israel. Israel, you need to do this. Take a lamb. Sacrifice it. Kill it. Put its blood over the lintel, over the door, and over the doorposts. And then go inside and eat that lamb. And as you do, stay in the house for the whole night. And when I pass over, wherever I see the blood on the doorpost, I will pass over you. I will not bring this judgment upon you. You see, over and over and over through the Old Testament, God was giving me a picture of Christ. It's the same with us in Christ. Why are we celebrating the Lord's Supper today? It's because these things represent things. It represents the body of Jesus Christ that was broken, that died for us. It represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. In other words, when we put our faith in Christ, we've got His blood on our door lintel, and posts. So when God sees the blood of Christ, He passes over us in judgment. We're not judged by God. We're saved through Him. You know what? All through Scripture, there are so many, even even Jonah. Jonah, the guy swallowed by a whale. How long is he in a whale? Three days. That number keeps popping up. And Jesus tells him, you know, they asked Him for a sign because apparently walking on the water, feeding 5,000 people with one boy's lunch and curing leprosy and raising the dead and so many other things weren't quite good enough. They came and asked him for a sign. And he says, you know what? An adulterous generation seeks after a sign. I'm going to give you one, one sign. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. In other words, then I'm coming out. You see, those are the things that Jesus pointed to to the disciples. Those are those pictures and, and other statements. You know, uh, Psalm chapter 16, verses 9 and 10 is David talking here. It says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David tells God, and he's speaking prophetically here of Christ, he tells God, you're not going to let my body see corruption. In other words, I'm not going to be dead and buried and decay. In Acts chapter 2, in Peter's message at Pentecost, he reminds them of what David said, and he says, you know what? We still have David's grave. David's body's still in it. And you know what? It's decayed. He wasn't talking about himself. Who was he talking about? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whom God resurrected from the dead. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, these things shouldn't surprise us. They're all through the Old Testament. All these things and more pointing at the death and the resurrection of Christ. If you read Psalm 22, it's amazing how clearly it is about Christ written hundreds of years before He came. Isaiah 53, incredibly, incredibly focused on what happened to Christ on that cross. All these things were predicted years, hundreds of years, some thousand or two years before Christ fulfilled all of these things. And so the stability 
of the gospel. We find, first of all, it's rooted in Scripture. And secondly, which we're actually going to focus on more next week, is it's also confirmed by eyewitnesses. And the Apostle Paul, he's just listing them here. And we're just going to kind of leave it at this. We'll come back to it again next week in more detail to see exactly all these appearances are. But notice, it, he keeps using that word over and over and over. He appeared. He appeared. He appeared. He appeared. He appeared. And who did he appear to? He says that he appeared to Cephas, which is also Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Over 500 brothers at one time. He says he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. And we're going to look at the strength of all those testimonies of those individuals and groups uh, next week. Because it's amazing the amount of historical strength to the speaking to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it confirms the resurrection. So the death and the resurrection both are confirmed in the Scriptures of the Old Testament pointing to the fact that this was going to happen. But it's also the stability of the Gospel is found in these eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Christ. People that were willing to pay with their life just for the one fact, I saw him alive after he was dead. That's some amazing testimony. And that's what we're going to investigate next week. So as we look at the good news, we see the good news is the Gospel. That's what it means. It's the good news. And it's that good news that Jesus came and laid down His life for us so that we could have life eternal.